Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Pacific Northwest National Laboratory has turned to Microsoft for high-performance computing in what it calls a multi-year collaboration. The lab and the software giant will apply artificial intelligence to speed up research in clean energy. Here with the details, PNNL Associate Director and its Chief Digital Officer, Brian Abrahamson. Mr. Abrahamson, good to have you with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And that's a couple extra syllables in there. That <laughs> a tough one to do. <laughs> yes, it is. Okay. Well, give us the domain in which this collaboration is occurring. I mean, it's energy, but what about energy? Yeah, so right now we think there's just tremendous potential in the use of AI for science. And the collaboration right now is really focused on advancing and accelerating scientific discovery in the field of chemistry and material science. And those are two scientific fields that are really key to the discovery of new materials for batteries and energy storage and such. Yeah, batteries are a big problem because it's sort of a technology that moves along analog and we need step function increase in battery capability to really realize these uh, dreams of nirvana, fair to say. That's exactly right. You know, I, I think the discovery of new battery materials and the chemistry needed for those is part of our initial focus in this collaboration with Microsoft. And, you know, part of that is, you know, reducing dependency on elements like lithium which can be you know, difficult to obtain, especially in the quantities that the world needs it. When you think about you know, the use of grid-scale batteries to uh, incorporate renewable energies into the power grid and other such use cases. And there's also the fact that uh, batteries, as we know them now, eventually wear out in a way that's not all that economic. Correct. Yes. They have a limited lifespan. And as we think about new battery chemistries that can improve both the density of what can be stored, the lifespan of those batteries, the accessibility of the materials used to produce the batteries, that's all important. All right. And now Microsoft is joining you. Let's talk about the arrangement first. Do you have a CRADA with them? Do you have a contract? How is this structured? You know, at the highest level, what we've done is we've signed an MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding with Microsoft. It is for a multi-year collaboration where we are really starting with the exploration of using AI to accelerate discovery in chemistry and material science, but we intend to move beyond that into other fields. And we have, from a structure perspective, that we then have a diverse set of projects underneath that that are advancing those goals. So, you know, as an example, we have certain engagements with the Department of Energy that we're bringing this collaboration to bear to advance some of those outcomes. Microsoft has some internal investments that they're making, and we as a national laboratory have some internal investments that we're making to advance the goals. So there really is a portfolio of projects, if you will, underneath this broader multi-year MOU. And I know what PNNL brings to this. You've got lots of scientists and people that know material science and know energy science and so forth. Microsoft writes code. (laughs) So what are they bringing to it? You know, several things. When you think about the convergence of high-performance computing, advanced artificial intelligence models in the cloud, right, there's really a very beautiful convergence that's happening there that Microsoft brings, you know, in case of chemistry and material science, right, they're, they're delivering that through the Azure Quantum Elements platform, which is something that we're working alongside of them to kind of prove out and to leverage. You know, the, the Azure cloud, some of the advanced AI models and some of the, the, the high-performance compute necessary to run those AI models effectively, you know, all are part of the equation. And coupling that with some of the scientific expertise that irrespective of the compute, right, that scientific expertise still remains essential to the development of these new materials and, and processes. And some of the uh, the AI models are specifically trained on science. 
And so, you know, you think about generic models, large language models, chat GPT, et cetera, trained on lots of content on the internet, right? We're bringing to bear in this partnership also models that are trained specifically on scientific content in order to help advance. We're speaking with Brian Abrahamson. He's the Chief Digital Officer and Associate Director of the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Give us an example. I mean, if you're looking for a new storage, there's anodes and diodes, and what's the other end of the battery besides the anode? The, the patho- anodes, cathodes, cathode. electrolytes. Yes, I was thinking of yes. cathode. And is it a matter of like modeling molecules, for example, and behaviors that you can do with a supercomputer? Give us an example of how this might work. So, you know, traditionally, there's a lot of trial and error, kind of an Edisonian approach to the discovery of some of these new materials. And to the extent that we can transition some of that upfront work to more computational simulation, leveraging artificial intelligence to help narrow down the playing field of kind of the universe of elements and structures that can be explored. And, you know, in this case, right, we went from 30-something million potential elements and structures to be evaluated. The artificial intelligence helped narrow that playing field significantly to several dozen that we could then use some of our human expertise to then evaluate and then start to synthesize candidate materials in the laboratory. So it literally is just an acceleration of what otherwise is a laborious process. Yes, because if you had, say, 30 million potential structures, and I'm presuming you mean molecular structures at this level of material research is beyond, you know, how far does this piece of steel bend, then there's no way that humans could test 30 million of them. So possibly nothing would happen if you couldn't narrow it down. Correct. You're talking decades and decades. And so this is where that simulation and, and, and simulation and, and leveraging computation is nothing new in this. It's the addition of some of these more advanced artificial intelligence models that can help to improve some of that upfront simulation and computational work. And is it also a vendor that has the computational capability in its own cloud versus the traditional way of national labs and other federal elements building bespoke supercomputers? Yeah, you know, we think of that as it's not an either or, it's an and. We think the role of high-performance computing in its traditional capacities, we think of some of the leadership class computing facilities at the DOE play an incredibly important role in scientific discovery. In addition to that, right, we think some of the, you know, the hyperscalers, people like Microsoft with, you know, significant horsepower also have a lot to offer in bringing some of those models and computing to bear. So really, it's, it's an and for us. And for those at the lab that absolutely sure they have a structure they want to work on and develop, you might have unlimited demand, but not even this resource is not unlimited. So how do you parcel out who gets to do what? You know, that's a big part of what this multi-year collaboration is about is, one, it's testing out and creating proof points of progress with some of these new AI models, you know, running in the cloud. But secondly, it's also about improving the accessibility of those models and those computing environments to the scientific community and and finding ways to do that. You know, that's what's one thing that I think a lot of scientists struggle with is sometimes with a lot of the computing that's available, there are cues. You're you're waiting. Uh, There's a lot of demand for those resources. And to the extent we can use the cloud to help create additional capacity for scientific research, we think there's a significant benefit in that. And will Microsoft have people on hand, for example, to say, well, here's how we can run this model, or this is the AI model that probably would give you the best answer or something like that? Absolutely. Microsoft is bringing some deep expertise in developing some of the AI and machine learning models that have been trained on scientific literature and content, and then surfacing those through their Azure cloud. And then we're applying those to some of our domain-specific challenges, right, in chemistry and material science that we have as a national laboratory in terms of our goals and our mission around, you know, a clean energy future. 
And is Microsoft getting money for this? Are they getting the intellectual property? I mean, there's an exchange of funds, fair to say? Yeah, I think for both organizations, I mean, you know, clearly Microsoft has commercial interests in licensing technology to help do this work. You know, this collaboration is really about applying some of those technologies to our mission and iterating on that together as we move it forward. And to the extent we can accelerate kind of our mission outcomes and help create a tool and a capability that can be used by the, the broader scientific community, we, we, we think there's a win-win there. So ultimately, this could feed your technology transfer process. Absolutely. You know, to the extent that discoveries are made that could be scaled up by industry and whatnot, that's a, that's a big part of what the national laboratories do. You know, we don't always bring things to industry scale, right? We do that technology transfer to let others do that. And by the way, is one area, getting back to the research itself, batteries that are power dense, but not weight dense? Because from what I've seen, electric cars and these pickup trucks coming, some of them would collapse your garage floor. And all they do is use their battery up to move their batteries around, basically, is what they're doing. Absolutely. When you think about the density of the materials, I mean, there's a lot of weight involved. And to the extent that there's opportunities to discover materials that have different characteristics that can improve upon that, right? I, you know, I, I think the, the, the future will tell us. But, uh, you know, all, the, all of those things are, are certainly in play. Brian Abrahamson is the Chief Digital Officer and Associate Director of the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Thanks so much for joining me. You bet. Thanks for having us. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah. 
Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, Is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I uh, 
presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is 
having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.